Welcome to the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Vember. In this episode, we continue to look back at our Talent for Africa forum. Convened by GBSN and its first corporate member, Ecobank Academy, this virtual forum was born out of the belief that no sector, business, government, education or non-profit can make meaningful progress alone, especially in such an incredibly diverse, complex and dynamic environment as Africa. This virtual forum highlighted the importance of leadership, management and entrepreneurship across sectors and across the continent. The forum aimed to explore the challenges of building education and development capacity and aligning it with the needs of a rapidly changing continent. These conversations were designed to review new opportunities for innovation and collaboration, especially across business and business schools, to overcome these challenges. In the last two sessions, we deal with the business of sustainable development and finally a session on powering digital transformation. In this, the third session of the series, it was my pleasure to host a panel on the future workforce, learning and development in the fourth industrial revolution. I am hesitant to suggest that this session above any of the others is one of the most uh, important ones, but of course it does deal with 4IR and session three, the future workforce learning and development in the fourth industrial revolution is vitally important to all that we do uh, at the Global Business School Network at Ecobank Academy and beyond as well. And we have three speakers in particular who I know will have great contributions to make and Importantly, I'm fairly certain that you will have great contributions to make as well. So I would encourage you to please submit your questions and your comments throughout the course of the session. So let me introduce uh, our speakers for today. Their bios, of course, were made available when you registered for this. So I won't be too long uh, about going about introducing them, but here they are nonetheless. Dr. Enase Okonedo is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Pan-Atlantic University in Nigeria. Prior to becoming Deputy Vice-Chancellor, she held several leadership positions at Lagos Business School, including Dean, EMBA Director, Academic Director, and Deputy Dean for Academics. She's a Bachelor's Degree in Accounting from the University of Benin, Nigeria, an MBA from ISA Business School in Barcelona, and a Doctorate in Business Administration from International School of Management in Paris. She's a fellow of the Institute of Chartered Accountants of Nigeria in 2015, in November of 2015. Uh, she was conferred as a fellow of the Society of Corporate Governance in Nigeria as well, in, rec in recognition of her exemplary leadership and contributions to good governance in that country. We're also very proud that she's a board member here of the Global Business School Network. Rebecca Harrison is the CEO and co-founder of the African Management Institute and has led the team since inception. AMI is a social enterprise that is pioneering and a scalable approach to skills development and workplace learning in Africa. Under Rebecca's leadership, AMI has reached over 20,000 individuals in 11 African countries, has developed a large growing portfolio, has raised equity, uh, debt and grant capital from African and international impact investors and foundations. Uh, she's a passionate about democratizing skills development and supporting entrepreneurship in Africa. She spent nine years as a foreign correspondent and manager for Reuters news agency, uh, where she led business coverage in Africa and reported from 13 countries in Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. Uh, she's completed an MBA in entrepreneurship uh, at South Africa's Gordon Institute of Business, where she graduated top of her class. And last, but by certainly uh, no means least, Dr. Nick Van Dam is internationally recognized uh, thought leader, advisor, researcher, author, and speaker 
on learning innovations and leadership development. Uh, Nick has over 30 years of business experience as a former partner, chief learning officer, HR executive and client advisor at McKinsey and Company, Deloitte, as well as Siemens. Nick is the chief of the IE Center for Corporate Learning Innovation, serves on the University Advisory Board and is professor in learning talent and leadership development. He's authored and co-authored more than 25 books and numerous articles on innovations in learning and learning development under the patronage of the European Parliament Federal Ministry of Education and Research. He received the 2013 Leonardo European Corporate Learning Award for shaping the future of organizational learning and leadership development. With that said, there's so much more that could be said about them, but I'll let them do most of the talking for the hour. I'm going to invite our panelists to please turn their cameras on and mute themselves and uh, bid them all a very warm welcome. Nick is joining us from the Netherlands, Enase is in Nigeria, and Rebecca joins us out of Kenya. The difficulty always with these sessions is there's such broad subject matter. Africa has such a vast array of opportunities and challenges. The problems are often so systemic that you find it's, it's hard to figure out where should we go in. So I'm going to ask Nick, to, to guide us in from a historical perspective as it relates to all that you've seen over the years in your working uh, as far as learning development is concerned. How is this moment, if at all, different in terms of the needs as it in particular pertains to Africa compared to anything else you've, you've encountered throughout your years of dealing in this work? Yeah, thanks, uh, Rob, and also for the introduction. And thanks, everyone, for, uh, for joining the session uh, today. Um, yeah, I think we are at an extra extraordinary time, um, not just because of COVID, what is in itself extraordinary, um, but I think, you know, we, we are at the beginning of the fourth industrial revolution, uh, you know, coined by, uh, by the World Economic Forum, also referred to as the digital age. And what we see over, the, what we will see over the next decade, there will be massive change uh, when it comes to, um, you know, work, uh, competencies, and as a consequence, um, you know, every single person around the globe need to upskill or reskill himself. So that by it, so if you ref just reflect on that, that is, you know, huge. And I think, you know, it's also a tremendous opportunity for, uh, for people, for uh, young people in Africa, uh, because this is the moment where you can really start developing specific competencies that are really needed uh, in many organizations, in many sectors globally. So just as a start statement, uh, Rob, in terms of the exciting time ahead of us, and maybe last thing that we talk about it, technology, who can really enable actually the skill development um, you know, for people. And I think, so Enasa is actually on a bit of a sabbatical at the moment. She's uh, doing some writing, she tells me. She's just left uh, LBS and preparing to start her new position. So Enasa, where you've perhaps been, you know, looking in the business school, strictly speaking, since for the last number of years uh, within your role, uh, becoming Deputy Vice Chancellor now and looking more at, at a broader institutional perspective with, with many different faculties and departments uh, falling underneath you. I'm sure you've been thinking a lot more about how we, we incorporate for IR uh, and with your new mandate as opposed to the, the, the one that you've just left. 
where from your from your perspective as you sit there now do we start tackling this this gigantic where do we you know where do we take the bite out of the apple and it's a big apple where do we start thank you i think we actually need to start before they get into the university you know so i think it needs to go backwards because to prepare the people who are coming into uni for the fourth industrial revolution we have to go back to how they're preparing them for uni in the first place. So that brings us to the quality of education that they're getting. And we can go back and look at what is the quality, what are the things that hinder the quality of people that come into the university just so that we can educate them for the fourth um, industrial revolution. Now, if I look back over my time at the business school and what we were educating people for then, and what we ought to be educating people for now, I see a huge difference. 25 years ago, when I joined the business school, our approach was, you know what, give people the functional knowledge that they need to deal with the various areas of business. So the marketing, the finance, and all of that. But then I've seen a change over the time as, you know, there's been developments in technology, as Nick alluded to, and developments in terms of even the sectors that are being created. So we have to move away to say, you know what, we're not educating people for today. We're educating for tomorrow. And if we give them functional knowledge for today, given the changing trends and the fast pace of you know, technology automation, their skills will be redundant in the near future. So we've had to change to adapt to that. Now coming to the university, I think that we need to move towards a more multidisciplinary approach to educating the people who come into universities today than educating them. In the past, if somebody came in for engineering, I'm sure they will do everything engineering, accounting, everything. But I think that now, especially to prepare people for the future of work, there has to be a blend of skills. So we have the tech and the science on one hand, and then we have the social sciences on the other, which have to be blended. So those are the things that you know, we have to keep in mind in educating the people that come into the broader universities today. And Rebecca, on, on that point, there's often this, and I think we had in fact um, stated so in the kind of pricey write-up for this session and posed one of the questions to be answered about whether or not we can, the suggestion implicit in the question was that it's an either or. You can either kind of upskill and bring people up to date or focus on starting from scratch. I would submit that we don't really have a choice. Both needs to be done somehow. Um, would you agree? And what are you seeing in your efforts to, to, to scale um, as you do? How do you even start approaching that task? Yeah, it's such an interesting question, isn't it? And I, I mean, I totally agree with, with Inasi. Um, it's, and with you, it's not an either or. Um, we absolutely need to be investing along the continuum of education into kind of training and lifelong learning and development. I guess though, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm a pragmatist at heart and, and uh, we do, you know, the reality is that of course resources are constrained. Um, and the fact that resources are constrained, I guess in my mind, places an even greater premium on the efficiency of our models. So we can't afford to be plowing money into solutions that don't work. Um, so I, I actually, I'm going to say something a bit controversial, which is I think that there's actually quite a lot of money going into certainly training and development at the, at the higher end of, of things, and that often it's not always well directed. Um, and if we could figure out ways to deliver solutions that really worked and that delivered impact and could do so at scale, um, rather than, you know, investing in solutions that 
perhaps well, that we know that there's evidence to suggest don't work, like a lot of kind of traditional training models, um, then then I think that's you know I think that's the answer. And then our dollar stretches further, and then we can invest invest along the continuum. And I, I think we'll talk about this later. But we're at AMI. We're really passionate about the potential of technology to um, to drive impact in learning. And we think that the silver lining of COVID in fact is the opportunity to, to open up innovative ways of using technology and kind of virtual learning opportunities to drive impact um, in a way that might just help us meet the needs and the scale of the needs that we see um, with this, this um, the, the fourth industrial revolution in, uh, in Africa. And I think perhaps we're, we're... We, we are called to be even more innovative because of the constraints. I mean, everyone's being innovative as a result of full IR and all the opportunities that it presents, but on the continent, uh, just looking at the lack of infrastructure to even fully try and envisage and imagine a, a, a really robust uh, continent thriving on full IR, we, we think of, you know, electricity challenges, infrastructure challenges uh, across the continent, really, that, that really does constrain our ability to scale. Nick, from, again, using your experience and what, what you've encountered throughout your, your work, what are the kind of the key drivers to ensure that we get that efficiency levels where they should be, considering the fact that we are so constrained? What are those very specific areas that we should be focusing on, considering the constraints that we have? And Rob, your question for clarification is: it, Does it relate to what kind of you know kind of learning and development, or do you refer yeah. to you know info? Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. So you know, I, I I think that it's key, and that we and it's gone almost by country, right? So there are significant differences by country in terms of where countries are in their evolution, their workforce, employment, what are the jobs needed, you know, which sectors are flourishing which sectors are not flourishing. So I think it's important to, of course, to do the analysis country by country, kind of where you are, right? Um, but saying that, there are, of course, there are a couple of macro trends when it comes to, uh, to people development. Um, and this relates to, you know, key competencies. Um, you know, one thing that I believe is that, um, you know, if we look at the role of, let's call it the machine and, and humans, um, that's looking ahead, but also looking back, we have learned that we will never win it from the machine on tasks where the machine is outstanding, right? So um, you think about processing information, etc. You know, machine is way better than we are, right? So therefore, we need to ask ourselves to say, okay, what are some of the unique capabilities, competencies, um, you know, that we can, you know, be very successful at as humans? and which ones will be done in the future more and more by machines. So that's one level of analysis. And then to say, okay, how can we develop those competencies? Now, and I believe there are a number of, you know, what I refer to human competencies, right? So think about um, uh, problem solving, creativity, uh, innovation, um, leading, you know, leading change, all those things machines cannot do. Right, so we need to think about how can we indeed accelerate those competencies for people. And then of course, beyond that, everyone needs to have a level of, you know, 
understanding and proficiency in technology overall. Um, and you know, and that's and that is becoming more and more important. So we as humans we need to do both, you know, these human competencies and technology competencies. Um, and I think that's kind of you know, and really focus on how we can accelerate them, um, you know, in the development for people over time. And I think the the in particular the the human competency is so important because we we seem to lose sight of. And get lost in all of the tech, which which you know turns a lot of people off to start with because that you know it's so complicated. But in I say when we look at again from institutional perspectives, and Nick talks about looking at individual countries and where they are at, what kind of work and research is going into again from from a higher ed perspective to your knowledge into finding out exactly those gaps that need to be filled so that we are training not just for the now but for the tomorrow. Are we doing enough to ensure that we know that we're training for the right stuff that lies ahead of us? Um, I guess so, even though it's a generalization, and Nick has made the point about differences across regions, even within Africa. But I dare say that more research ought to be done in terms of trying to understand what the needs of the future are and you know, what employers are looking for and how we're preparing people because it is that, uh, it's the research that goes into that, that shapes the curriculum that schools adapt. And if I look at the curriculum of schools, again, a generalization across board, uh, there's not very much change. I would like to see more change than we have seen previously. So for some courses, we find that it's the same curriculum, even in a fast changing um, sector that has been used over. So indeed, more research has to be done. Now, the specific type of research is what is industry looking for? What are employers looking for in that regard to be able to then come back and then you know, drive the uh, curriculum? The other thing is that now the research should be geared more towards evidence-based solution. So it's a more practical and applied research, I feel, that will be more relevant in order to develop the people rather than the empirical, you know, what we had seen previously that you know, when you do that research, it's only seven people that read it is highly academic. So again, the type of research, the application to industry is especially important to guide the talent that we're developing. And is, is that effort, that research effort, again, if we think in terms of the level of efficiency that we need and, and being direct in terms of requirements, is it Nick saying, you know, we need to meet countries where they're at, but there obviously is also this big pan-African push, uh, continental free trade uh, area coming in as well. Should we be doing more continentally or within regions of the continent to look at what those specific regions perhaps need as opposed to what specific countries are needing? Okay, I think it will be both. You know, uh, we must recognize that the differences between countries in Africa sometimes are very wide. And whatever it is and how we're preparing people must be contextualized to the environment. So that calls for research that has domestic application within the geographies in which universities are. But certainly there is room because there are certain similarities that exist across the continent that call for more collaborative research. And then again, we find that across disciplines, you know, so the research that we need to be carrying out now, we may not have the skills to do that within a particular geography, which calls for collaboration with other institutes or other units across the continent, in which case we'll be looking at the perspective 
from a taking a continental approach to that. So I think it is both. I don't think that there's a trade-off one against the other, recognizing the fact that you know, there are differences, but there are also similarities across the continent. And Nick, you, you alluded to as well, you know, looking at, at specific areas, countries, you alluded to looking at specific sectors. Are, in the context of Africa, for, from, from your experience, is there, are there sectors that, that we have more opportunities with that we should be tackling first ahead of others? I mean, we've seen some really uh, innovative work come out of some of the African countries, whether it's use of uh, drones, I, I believe in Rwanda, um, going to deliver medical goods uh, as it relates to even pre-COVID times, uh, certainly as it relates to uh, agriculture, we've seen some bright lights across the continent. Uh, are those kind of core key sectors? Are there any others that you think we should more specifically be focusing on when it comes to training and upskilling and learning uh, as it regards for IR? Yeah, it's, it's hard, as I said, it's hard to generalize, right? So uh, in terms of, you know, where do we, where will be the growth uh, and what, or where should we spend time in, in uh, educating people? I think, again, it goes back to the, to the you know, analysis by country. But there are a couple of, of course, a couple of key themes, right? So um, depending on also the, the level of education that's, that is needed, also, the needs in, in a specific country, right? So as an example, uh, you know, uh, tourism is currently kind of flat, right? So it's, or it's, it's bad. Uh, and tourism will go up again, right? So that's just a matter of time, you know? So, so I anticipate, you know, the tourism sector will, 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 will grow again. Um, overall, when you think about technology, there's no doubt, right? So over the next decades, there will be, you know, huge growth actually in the tech sector, uh, in in designing, developing all kinds of solutions uh, that needs to be implemented. Uh, to me, what is what is key is going back to what what we discussed before is that every person, no matter if you are in agriculture or in tourism or in financial services or pick any other industry, needs to double down. On, in understanding new technologies and how they will be used for advancing business processes, disrupting business businesses um, by, you know, as a consequence, offering new products and services. Um, but also, a number of jobs will disappear, right? So, if you look at financial services globally, um, you know, the number of jobs for people who, let's say, work in in a local bank has declined already significant over the last decades and this continues to be the case so so therefore yes we need to look at what are different roles uh, that are required and that are roles where you know people have a better understanding of let's say you know data analytics uh, uh, um, um, uh, as an example you know machine learning ai right so there are a number of these areas where we expect you know there will be growth everywhere so, uh, and then my final comment is, of course, it also goes back to the individual, right? So um, we need to think about for each person, what is, you know, you know what is your talent, your strength? What are the things you get excited about? Because not everybody wants to become uh, a data analyst, right? So let's face it. So we need to think about on a personal level, how can we make sure we increase uh, uh, employment for all? Right, so that's the that's the big challenge I think ahead of us.
Uh, glad to see you, you managed to make your way uh, back in, Rebecca. Thank you. Uh, we, we're just, we were just discussing for your benefit Sorry. and would, would, no, no problem. And would like you to, to contribute looking at are there specific sectors that we should in particular be focusing on on the continent? So talking healthcare, agriculture, any, any, any particular sectors and perhaps in your work, you've encountered um, particular movements in certain directions or sectors yeah. that we would yeah. most benefit from that are currently best primed uh, to, to accelerate and to scale. Yeah, um, I was just thinking to myself, I, jin I jinxed myself. As soon as I start, start talking passionately about technology, you can guarantee that you're still playing full <laughs> crap. <laughs> so I'm so sorry about that. I'm sorry to have missed some of the conversation. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, this is a really interesting question around sectors we're grappling with a bit at the moment. I mean, the reality is that if you, if you want to do something really concerted in a sector, you're often going to require some kind of development funding still. Um, that's been our experience anyway. Um, and so we quite often find ourselves still, you know, driven by donor priorities. And thankfully, a lot of, there's a lot of donor interest at the moment in some really exciting sectors that we think um, you know, are, are going are, are gonna to be high potential for the continent. So, for example, we're seeing a lot of um, energy in the clean, the, a lot of energy in the clean energy sector, um, the kind of access to energy sector at the moment, um, and agriculture, of course, as well, just because of the, the contribution to economies. Um, I think what's, what's exciting as learning providers is that, um, you know, even if we're not always in control of where the you know where the big projects are what we can do is take a really demand driven approach once we're involved in a sector so we've been involved in a really just to give an example really interesting project in clean energy and access to energy um where it's a it's a, it's a big project focused on building um capacity in the access to energy space and strengthening companies and where our project is particularly focused on talent and building skills and talent. And we've been able to work with another organization that has worked closely with companies to identify kind of skills gaps and needs. Um, and they've been able to, they specialize in kind of recruitment, but kind of innovative recruitment, demand-driven recruitment model, been able to identify those needs and um, find the right people to fit them. And then we've been able to come in with some of the training and development um, to make sure to kind of um, level them up to be ready to take those roles. And I think those kind of models are really interesting where, you know, we as, as learning providers can work really closely with the private sector um, to develop demand-driven programming um, that's really directly, literally developing skills that could be kind of plugged into a sector. So that doesn't totally answer your question about the sector itself, but I think whatever the, you know, wherever the sector focuses, for me, the really important thing is to be then very focused and demand driven, again, kind of a, a focus on efficiency um, to make sure that we're investing in the right skills and the right people for the jobs that are needed to drive the continent forward. I want to remind everyone to please your questions and your comments in, in, in the chat bar. Uh, you can get them through and I'll be sure to pose them um, to, to our panelists. And, and I say to stay on, on this, this track of, of whether we've been driven by demand or, or what's, what's coming our way from a, a student perspective, uh, Nigeria being your base, what has been your experience where the greatest, whether it's the greatest demand from a corporate perspective or, or, or a sector perspective, or even from a student perspective, uh, what have you found as it relates to what those various groupings of people are, are wanting with, for, with the fourth industrial revolution in mind? 
that I agree with what uh, Nick has said, and I think uh, with Rebecca as well, that um, what, we're lo what they're looking for now, what it is that I saw, was um, a shift towards more soft skills. Okay, so yes, we need the technical things, but a move, a move towards more soft skills. The things like I think that Nick mentioned a couple of them, the problem solving, creativity, the critical thinking. So I think employers are seeking their, you know, we recognize that, you know, what machines will do is they will, you know, churn the data, they will do all of those. But then we still are looking for the adaptable social and behavioral skills, the cognitive skills. I always make the point that, you know what, machines don't run companies, individuals do. And therefore, you know, we need to be able to develop these uh, individuals to use what it is that, you know, the machines produce for us. And therefore, what are those things that they're looking for? So from that sector perspective, there's a move towards looking for this sort of skills rather than the specific things. There's some professions now that, um, if I may, they seem to be getting a bit extinct just because machines can do the jobs better. Okay, so we find that uh, things like accounting, things like that, you know, they can do it a lot better. But then there's new jobs that are being created in other sectors. So if I look at Nigeria, for instance, with financial services, to answer your question uh, earlier on, uh, with hospitality, with information uh, services, you know, really in the service area, I see more of a boom and a demand for skills that can fit into those sectors. But then on the line, there seems to be like a general thread that's running through what employers are seeking more from the away from the specific to more all those things that we have mentioned uh, previously. And then from the university perspective, uh, obviously I think that across many nations in Africa, you have a regulator who determines what it is that you can uh, offer, who you have to go through there. So more than the universities being innovative on their own, I think what has to happen is that on the national level, there has to be a strategy or national policy to guide what it is that the regulators ask of universities, just so that we can be sure that the offerings and the courses within universities are robust to meet the needs of the future, not looking back to the past and being stuck there. And we, we one of the, 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 I believe, you know, key positives in, in Africa that perhaps we're not taking as much advantage of is how many people have mobile devices in their hands, uh, more so than, than any other you know, geographical place in the world. How do we, if any, any one of you have ideas of how we can use the mobile device or better use the mobile device uh, as a tool to bring information to people, to, to aid in this upskilling process, Rebecca? Yeah, I'm happy to take that one and hope my mobile will hold up. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, I think technology is so exciting. Um, not only, so I think what's been so interested with COVID is that, um, you know, it's really rapidly accelerate, accelerated digital adoption. So I'm sure like many of others on this call, you know, when COVID hit in, around this time last year, we very rapidly moved all of our programs fully online. Um, with our programming, typically we combine a mobile app um, with synchronous sessions. So we used to do workshops, we shifted those online to a conventional active Zoom, and then a real focus on, on the job, um, on the job practice. And what we found exciting about acceleration of digital adoption is that you're really able to narrow the gap 
between kind of learning and implementation. So again, if your goal is really to drive um, behavior change and better run businesses, more higher performing managers and, and kind of people in jobs, then it doesn't, I mean, of course it matters what they learn, but it matters less what they learn than what they actually do. And what we think is really exciting about mobile is this opportunity to use some kind of behavioral economics, nudging type techniques to be able to deliver micro content to um, managers, entrepreneurs, whoever it might be, kind of when they need it, at the point of need while they're at work as well, and the kind of nudges to be able to actually get them to implement that on the job. Um, so we, interestingly, we thought when we moved everything online, we'd see a massive drop in engagement because, you know, we all, as, as kind of um, learning people, we love the human interaction. Um, and actually what we found is that engagement was maintained and for some groups, so particularly entrepreneurs and particularly women, so just to address this question just briefly around kind of women and marginalized, technology, if it's done right, can really work for people who are particularly time poor. So entrepreneurs and particularly women are time poor. And so we got a lot of uh, feedback, in fact, from um, entrepreneurs in our program saying, my goodness, instead of taking a whole day out to come to a workshop, I can fit in a 90 minute webinar and then have a quick, you know, download a tool and go use that with my team and my business immediately, instead of having to put aside these much longer kind of chunks of learning um, and so I, I think there's still a ton to learn and I, I, I saw a question about you know how do we address some of the challenges around technology and make sure that it's accessible to the marginalized as well and I, I don't think we have easy answers to that yet but I do think that you know if we can keep thinking innovatively and and um, it, with an opportunity with an opportunity mindset about technology um, I think we've only just started to scratch the surface of what's possible. And I think so. I mean, we're talking about the use of full IR as far as upskilling for particular sectors, uh, yeah. particular regions on the continent. But to continue on the thread of actually using full IR as a tool for upskilling uh, people, uh, Nick, the mobile device, uh, as we've just discussed, is, is so convenient uh, on the continent because it is so widely used. Uh, you know, great examples of mobile money ad adoption, PESA, and all those kinds of uh, financial instruments how can we better make use of technology to bring this skilling across or to, to teach uh, imperfectly worded but i think you get the point yeah th thanks uh, rob um well first you know if i step back in terms of also reflecting on the, what rebecca was saying um, about mobile devices and that goes back to the learning experience you know, the, there are a lot of insights from, uh, from the neurosciences in terms of how people learn and what the implications are for designing effective learning. So let me give you a couple of examples. We know that from a knowledge uh, retention perspective, what we need to do is we need to design learning interventions um, where we repeat, you know, sharing knowledge a number of times. Uh, secondly, <clears throat> there is space between the different moments that people learn. Um, and also that um, smaller chunks of knowledge, uh, if we transfer that, uh, are way more effective than if we have people together for four hours in a room, right? Um, beyond that, we know that people learn, um, you know, from interaction and by doing something themselves. So the whole notion of action, action learning. And if you reflect on that and say, wow, you know, what's the potential of mobile learning? It's huge because you can indeed, you know, 
provide people on their mobile devices with chunks of knowledge in a certain time, you can add techniques like gamification uh, to it where people earn badges and points. And that will make the learning experience very effective. So, so, so I'm very optimistic that, you know, kind of what we know from the learning sciences in terms of how to design highly effective learning, make them available through mobile devices uh, that can have a huge impact on indeed the upscaling and rescaling uh, of people. And of course, some, a further benefit is that learning doesn't have to necessarily be synchronous. I mean, it could be asynchronous. You could, uh, you know, perfectly tailor things towards individuals and gives you better tracking and data on the back end to see where individuals are at. Correct? Sure. Yeah, I think I think it also goes back to the uh, let's say uh, learning analytics, right? So the, the exciting thing is that we can track everything what's happening actually uh, on people's smartphone. And that will give us insights, kind of what they learn, how they learn, what we can do differently. Um, so combining those, the sciences will, will have a huge impact. There's a, a question through from uh, Karen Sherman from Davis College and the Aquila Institute in Rwanda, uh, also agreeing that tech is critical to scale market relevant higher ed programs, but tech infrastructure weak across many African countries and particularly for underserved populations and women. How can we address this more collaboratively, collaboratively across institutions? And I guess, and I said, takes us back to that question of, you know, do we deal within regions? Uh, do we deal within countries? But looking at specifically from an institutional perspective, and that's largely why the Global Business School Network is here as well for your benefit. Our mission is to improve uh, management and entrepreneurial skills in the developing world. How do we better collaborate on an institutional level to ensure that we are, whether looking at the pedagogy, looking at using 4IR to better scale or doing that research more broadly? Are you seeing enough? Okay, thank you. Uh, no, I'm not seeing enough. I think that we want to see more, but uh, before we come uh, to that, I will speak specifically about the collaboration on pedagogy and things like that between institutions. I think that the collaboration has to be broader because if we look at you know, the constraints that go against technology, certainly it's scalable you know, if we can adapt it and if more people are using it there, but there are things that the, we rely on the government to be able to produce, we rely. So there's, you know, the things about the infrastructure that is needed to support it, the power, um, as well as the access to broadband and so on and so forth. But then I think that the mistake that we make is that we believe that that infrastructure is in place across most of Africa. So what we need to do is collaborate on the how and it will reach the people. If we look Look at the population in which we have more or less 45% that are in rural and then 55 in urban. In those places, there's not even access. So I think at a broader level, there has to be collaboration between governments, perhaps foundations and companies who I think ought to look at this as, uh, you know, enlightened self-interest. If we can develop a broader talent pool, then we can hire from there, you know, to meet the needs. So that's on the first place. And then with the institutions, yes, we cannot make that uh, we cannot do those things, but then within ourselves, we can share what has worked. So we can look at what has worked in this, that you don't need to reinvent it, and you can then replicate it there. You know, in the past, we used to be adapters of technology. If something had worked somewhere, we would bring it and then we will adapt to suit our needs. But then there are peculiarities, again, back to the differences. 
There are peculiarities that say we need to come up with innovations that are very much suited there. And in that space, I think that there's a lot that can be done in that regard. And when we look at collaborators from your perspective, Rebecca, are you finding in terms of development and the, and, and the finance that you have access to, is it largely coming from outside of the continent? Is there enough capital on the continent being plowed back into the continent? What, what is your experience in terms of your work? You're on mute. Sorry, in terms of learning specifically? Yeah, correct. Or, yeah. Or yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it's, I think, you know, obviously the business school model is a particular model, but when you start looking at kind of providing learning for a much broader group, um, so for, for entrepreneurs, for more marginalized people, um, the funding model is really, really hard and the market is, is, is broken. I mean, it's, it's not a functioning market right now. It's dominated by development players and, and donors. And yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what is this market going to look like long-term? How can we really demonstrate very clearly the value of learning and lifelong learning to entrepreneurs and business people um, and decision makers in companies to ensure that, um, you know, that companies here on the continent are and, and individuals are investing in solutions that are going to really yield results. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say for now, a lot of money is still coming from outside the continent, but it, it's it's needed and it's welcome. Um, and my hope is over time that that transitions and it transitions more towards a kind of a, a true market where the beneficiaries of those of that learning are the ones who eventually really see the value and are able to pay for it. And technology is going to be part of that because, of course, the other side of the market is being able to drive down costs to the point where um, where uh, the demand side can can bear those costs. So you get true product market fit. And that's where, again, technology can be so exciting. Nick, are we seeing enough adoption by by big corporates who are, you know, whether in particular invested on this continent to plow back from a lifelong learning upskilling perspective? Are you, have you noticed any, any significant increase over the years in that regard? Yeah, so what you see is, um, let's say if I go back in time in terms of uh, digital learning, right? So, um, you know, digital learning or computer-based learning has been around for, for a long time. Um, and the big change happens after 1997 uh, with the arrival of the internet. And then the term e-learning was coined. And since then, over the last 20, 20 plus years, we have seen a huge shift in particularly large corporations to adopt way more kind of digital learning in all kinds of formats. And of course, if you reflect over the last 12 months or the last 10 months, uh, this has gone double down, right? So basically many corporations, um, well, all corporations uh, have moved to the internet when it comes to learning. Uh, and for different levels, right? So th there has been typically an, a level of resistance for leaders uh, to be involved in digital learning. Um, but, you know, that has happened now. Uh, and guess what? Uh, people feel, wow, you know, this is indeed very powerful, uh, can, be, can be very effective, um, you know, if well-designed, right? So from a, from a pedagogy and instructional design perspective, 
And I had a survey, um, a research survey launched earlier in the year or last year. Um, and, you know, the feedback from corporations is that, you know, digital learning is here to stay. Um, after the pandemic, they will do even more than, you know, they have done before. And sure, um, there's still a place where people will come together. Um, you know, I always think about, you know, high tech, high touch learning, right? So the, we use technology as much as possible, but also there's a moment that people like to be together as humans and they will um, develop and practice skills. Uh, they will network. Um, it's about culture building. Um, also life problem solving or working on a specific, you know, action-based learning initiative. But, but basically, um, you know, the pandemic has changed learning dramatically, particularly corporate learning. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's very exciting. And, and organizations are doing more because they have to do more uh, in order to upskill their people and also to reskill their workforce. And that cannot, if you look at how massive that need is, that cannot happen in classrooms with 25, 30 people. It's just the bandwidth is insufficient in order to make that happen. Can I, can I add something to that? Do you mind me jumping in, um, Rob? Sure. I, I was just thinking back to your first question about, um, you know, do we have the capacity to invest in both schools and lifelong learning? And, and reflecting on the fact that, you know, as educators at the other end, at the lifelong learning end of the spectrum, um, we are so well placed actually now given co to respond to COVID. Um, as, a, as a mother of two young boys, I can um, categorically say that online learning for young children is not optimal. Um, and, uh, you know, it's clear that you know the in-person is so critical for kids whereas and, and there's less room I think to be to be innovative there but I think that's what's so exciting just as you said Nick that at this end of the spectrum where we're working the there are so many opportunities um and and as you say thoughtfully designed of course but um but there is real opportunity it's not just out of necessity I think I think we started off thinking about virtual learning as we were all pushed into it because of COVID I think now it's actually the time to say well, you know, how can we use this to our advantage and move to a whole new level in terms of scale and impact? And us, if, so, so to take that thread from a, from a university and higher ed perspective, I imagine students are still very much wanting the physical personal interaction in, in classrooms. Uh, perhaps administrators are thinking of you know, this blended approach seems to work fairly well from their perspectives. Where, where is your, your mind at? What are you seeing at, from where you've come and, and, and where you're going to at the moment as far as the respective institutions are concerned? Uh, how much of what we've experienced in the last year from a technology point of view and a pedagogy learning point of view, are we likely to continue taking forward? Thank you. I think that's from uh, the business school perspective is as Nick uh, described, a lot of corporates are moving. Um, at first, when we tried to push the digital learning, uh, the selling proposition was, you know what, if you move towards uh, this is less time away from office, less travel, and sometimes perhaps less cost there, but um, companies were slow. What we've seen happen is that the whole situation with the pandemic accelerated the adoption of this, and now they actually see that, you know what, it works well. So from that perspective, it works. Now, from the perspective of universities, especially with new intakes, 
not so much. There's still a lot of resistance. Obviously, schools moved, you know, online. Well, universities such as mine moved online to offer it there. But then we had less of a resistance with uh, the cohorts that had already come. They had already bonded with their classmates, and therefore it was not so difficult to do that because they already had some sort of camaraderie and you know all those sort of things. But with the new ones, well, they didn't have a choice, but they came. But then what we now see is that there's a lot of pushback because they want to um, have the face to face. We also feel that at that stage where you're developing people, all those skills that we spoke about, you know, the social skills, those things, they're things that uh, so far uh, technology has not yet honed it to a T for you to be able to do that. Yes, we pass the knowledge. To some extent, we learn some things, but there are things that the face-to-face -face interaction, uh, you know, provides, which at that young level, we think that it is imperative that they get that. So I think we will see more of a blended learning approach as time goes on uh, to developing both the skills that we spoke about, as well as providing the knowledge through the online interaction. And I want to touch... Yeah, please. May, uh, to, to build on that, um, thanks, yeah, absolutely. Ines, absolutely. To, to share this. It's also what I see, actually, and this is more from my, uh, my role at uh, IE University, but also um, um, I'm, I'm affiliated with the um, University of Pennsylvania. Um, so, so what I see is uh, we need to think about different archetypes of students uh, because they have different needs. Um, so as an example, I think when we think about uh, undergraduate education, um, you know, many, many young students, uh, they still love to come together. You know, I give you an example. Um, in the Netherlands, we have experienced also our lockdown. We are still in lockdown. Um, and there has been a student protests um, a couple of months ago that students are desperate to go back to university. You know, they don't, you know, and they are the digital natives, right? So, uh, but they don't want to be online, you know, kind of five days a week, uh, uh, every week, right? Um, and of course, there are also, you know, undergraduate students who say, you know, uh, from a cost perspective or learning style perspective or, you know, etc. I like to have a part time job and I like to go to school. Right. So it's another archetype. And let's take let's take graduates. So at IE uh, University in Madrid, uh, currently 70 percent of all our master degrees are already blended um, because it fits very nicely with the expectations of a couple of archetypes of students. So, so, so I think that's kind of we need to think through, and also if we think about executive education. Again, that's also a different, different um, you know layer, and there are different archetypes of students in executive education. So, I hope you know I'm optimistic that you know with all the education institutions globally including the, the edXs and the Corseras of this world, we can provide uh, an offerings that basically support, you know, the needs for a very diverse, you know, group of learners in different age categories around the world. And I think certainly, you know, those are, are, are comments that we can, we can apply broadly. And I wonder whether, to come back to your comment, which I believe is related, Rebecca, about uh, women and marginalized people, whether there is something, again, unique in, in the broadest sense of, of the African continent of warm, welcoming, opening people who are used to doing things communally, um, largely speaking across the continent, whether we factor that enough into 
uh, these types of learning experiences that we're trying to create? Um, yeah, I, I, um, I, I don't feel qualified to comment on, yeah, like a, a big cultural difference, but I, I, I see the point and, I, and I, I mean, I think human connection has got to be at the heart of learning, hasn't it? And I, we just see that, you know, across all of our programs that people want to connect and it's a core part of our programming in fact is around peer-to-peer -peer learning. Um, so we have the mobile tools and then we have kind of peer-to-peer -peer learning and kind of interactive sessions and then a focus on, on the job practice. So I absolutely agree that kind of human connection has got to be at the heart of it. In my mind, I think sometimes we get caught up with the idea of tech versus, you know, in-person in versus digital, analog versus digital. Um, and in fact, the real question is around um, two things I think that make a program really successful, at least for our kind of constituents are around, um, one, the human connection. So do people feel they're able to connect with others and learn from others? And then the second is, are they able to apply what they learn kind of immediately in, the, in their job? Um, and, and I really firmly believe that you can do either of those two things, either online or in person, if you think creatively. It's definitely much harder online. It's harder to have a, you know, to, to have a party at the end, a graduation party. But we've had graduation parties online. Um, and you have to think a little bit harder about how to engage people um, and, you know, how to create those connections. But it, but it is possible. So we've got about five more minutes so i want to go around the room twice and if there are any last minute questions please uh, in the chat bar below uh, let's start with overall thoughts on what's some of the biggest challenges that we face in 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 summary uh, that you believe to to better scale um to to better reach more people within the continent to better collaborate of course, as it relates to the fourth industrial revolution. So some of your biggest challenges, and I promise we'll get to the opportunities before we, before we log off today. Uh, Inasi, do you want to, do you want to start? Biggest so, challenges. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, the biggest challenge at the university level was really, uh, we can create all the tools, we can uh, develop the courses that are all online based. Uh, but one of the biggest challenges that we face, especially during this COVID period, was that the income levels that get in the way of students actually acquiring uh, you know, the tools that they need, the equipment that they need, be it a mobile device or a computer in order to access everything that we have created. And then secondly, on a continuing basis to be able to pay for the internet access. So at my uni, for instance, we had to uh, start a drive for donations for people to donate uh, their used tablets. And then we also had to provide a certain amount of data to them. So one thing is to create this, but we can't do that without being cognizant of the larger or the broader environment in which these people operate and need to assess the learning. That's the big challenge for me. Yeah, there was a, I think it was a comment from, uh, I think it was Samantha earlier on was talking about the cost of data, uh, certainly as well. And I know um, a, a university down the road from me, I'm based in Cape Town. Um, there are a couple around, so I went out to the specific one, but also had to, to make arrangements to provide a whole load of students with laptops and, and prepaid data so that they could actually uh, function throughout, throughout COVID. And Nick, biggest challenges? Yeah, I, I think of course when I when I reflect on uh, on Africa, 
you know, and, and what was mentioned before, right? So, so first is, you know, you cannot do any online digital learning if you don't have equipment, if you don't have the bandwidth, et cetera, right? So everything starts or ends with that, right? So that, I think that's, the, that's one big theme. Um, beyond that, uh, it also goes back to, okay, um, how can we design uh, very effective and efficient learning solutions for people? Um, and again, that goes back to, you know, what I shared before in terms of, you know, learning that is uh, science-based, evidence-based, uh, and we know it makes a difference because what we have seen in the past, but also over the last year, that not all of the digital learning that is developed and deployed is necessarily effective or engaging or high quality, right? So, so therefore, and there is a risk, right? So if, if we offer something and it's perceived as poor quality, people don't come back anymore. So, so therefore, to double down on high quality, well-designed uh, content and solutions, I think is very important. And the last thing relates to the faculty and you know teachers, right? So, so I believe that um, you know at the end of the day, uh, also online, um, you know the teacher, the faculty member will make the difference. So how can we make sure that we you know we get to you know what I call faculty excellence? How do we make sure that faculty get used to work with different learning platforms to blend their learning, uh, to design their learning in a very different way, uh, to teach in a, in a way that is very, uh, you know, very effective. I think that's also another challenge that many schools still have around the world. How can we raise the quality of our faculty when it comes to teaching? And my last comment on that is, I always say to also the professors at IE, I said, as a faculty member, you know, I think you need to think about, you have two legs. One leg is your, you are a subject matter expert. You do research. And your second leg is your profession as a teacher. And that means like, you know, understanding didactics, pedagogy, uh, design, right? And particularly now in this age with digital learning, how to use that in your, in your programs. Right. Rebecca? Um, yeah, I'm going to um, answer the challenge question and also Dan's question about the informal yeah, economy right. in one go. Okay, so um, I, this is such a great point, Dan. Thanks for raising it. The, the informal economy, which obviously accounts for the majority of, of jobs, in fact, uh, jobs if you call them jobs or economic activity um, across the continent. And this is a challenge, again, I, I think also an opportunity. But um, I was thinking about, you know, 4IR, and this has been said before, but it's really like moving from this kind of supervision economy to an entrepreneurial economy. And we see that shift just, it's just happening before our eyes in these markets where, you know, platform companies are, you know, just growing every day. The gig economy is taking off. We see young people more and more with this kind of portfolio approach to work with, you know, kind of a gig here, a gig there. And whether that's kind of a gig through an online platform or kind of, a, you know, work that they might pick up in different places. Um, and what's interesting is that that's now happening, not just, I mean, that's happening. We've had a gig economy in Africa obviously for um for decades but that's happening now with kind of knowledge workers as well um which is really interesting so it just for me the challenge then as a as a, a learning provider is is to really how we are 
traditional models of learning, because traditional models of learning just don't meet the need at all for the informal economy. Um, you know, you don't have an employer who's going to pay for you to go and do an executive education course or an MBA. Um, you don't, you know, you don't have the visibility even into your earnings to know that you can go and invest in a big, you know, expensive course. So this need for this much leaner, um, kind of minimum viable learning, you know, can we provide just what's needed right now um, is, is a, ch a massive challenge and a massive opportunity. So just really, I mean, we've been working with Uber, for example, on um, supporting their women drivers with these kind of for, for IR type skills, exactly that, like how can they make more, you know, what can they do to just make more money each day? How can they delight customers? Those really urgent kind of needs. Um, yeah, so that's my challenge and my opportunity, I think. I appreciate that. And out of interest on what kind of working with these these women Uber, Uber drivers, you're doing that in a in a classroom setting or you're doing that on, you know, virtually. How, how are you delivering that training? Yeah, it started off as a blend of the two. So we did have some in person um, in person sessions and then, of course, used our app. Um, so that they were able to download a tool or do a short course, video-based course, you know, during some downtime. Um, that worked really well. With COVID, obviously, we had to stop doing the in-person and then we moved to doing it fully virtually. Great. Fantastic. I'm, I'm glad you answered Dan's question. He is the boss, so we, we would need to get to that at some point. <laughs> Keep him happy. <laughs> Keep him happy. Indeed, we are out of time. Um, if anyone has any last pressing uh, opportunity thoughts, I, I know you all weaved a lot of that in there, but if there is anything, I will provide you the opportunity to, to do that now. Um, Nick, was that a, a finger raised or were you, are you good? No, maybe one, one I, th I think uh, I'm very optimistic about the future. I think that, um, you know, what we have seen in the past that technology provides a lot of opportunities for people. So, um, you know, and also with, you know, the internet and mobile learning, um, you know, tremendous opportunities for, for universities to make a difference, for faculty to make a difference, uh, and for students to really develop themselves, and for people who are working, opportunities to upskill and reskill themselves. So I'm very optimistic about the transitions we are going through. Uh, it can be hard work, but, um, you know, it, it will be very exciting. And I'll give you the last word. Okay, I just wanted to speak to Dan's question. Uh, yes, uh, yes, you know, so I think that, you know, uh, fire really can impact the informal in various ways. I think one of the ways is to empower those in the formal, uh, informal sector with access to information about jobs, about services. That access to information as well is also critical for the provision of financial services to those in the formal, informal sector that can enable them access um, credits uh, as well. So I find that there are pockets of opportunities that could be utilized to sort of bring those in the formal sector to the formal sector and provide them with the needed tools for development. Uh, thank you to all of our panelists for your time today. And I say, Nick, uh, Rebecca, we really appreciate it, despite some of the technical difficulties, uh, Rebecca, uh, you were here and that's what's most important. Thank you to all of you for your questions and your comments as promised you will receive the recording uh, and we do hope that you will join us for uh, the following session uh, session four of this uh, talent for africa series with the global business school network and uh, ecobank academy the business of sustainable development For more on our Talent for Africa forum with Ecobank Academy, visit gbsn.org slash talent for Africa. And that's the numerical four.
please remember to click and subscribe to the podcast and feel free to rate us if you've enjoyed listening. Until next time, take care.